Welcome to Conversation Pace. My name is Brian Rossetti. I'm the founder of VDOTO2. We're excited to have Dr. Jack Daniels back on the show. In episode one, we checked in with Jack to see how he was holding up in the pandemic. Fittingly, he led off this podcast. After all, it's named after him and partly a tribute to his coaching philosophy. As always, when you talk to Jack, you're in for a treat. His knowledge, the diversity of his experience and the 20 different lives he's lived make conversations with him so fascinating. As you'll learn, Jack has lived and worked in multiple countries in well over a dozen states in the US. In this episode, we start from the very beginning of his life story, his earliest memories, and built through his childhood, college, entering the army, and then competing in the Olympics. His autobiography, Luck of the Draw, is now available online. There's no way we could do his life story in just one episode, so this is part one with part two coming soon. I've heard many of Jack's stories over the years and know so much about him, but I've never fully understood how his family, where he lived, and other early influences helped shape him and set him on a path to become a world-renowned exercise scientist and one of the greatest running coaches of all time. I hope you enjoy this story about truly an American icon. Here's part one of Luck of the Draw. Welcome back. Um, we've got Luck of the Draw, right? The, the, the self-published came out a few years ago, but tell us a little bit about the new published co- copy is now available, correct? Yeah, right. It's it's basically the same information. It's just being published by a, a, another or, or publishing company down in South Carolina and uh, Comedon. And yeah. it's it's available on, in several ways. One, you know, you can go to uh, the computer. You can get it off the computer, or you can do it on different. Different trade. I don't even know them all. I haven't written down someplace. Yeah. So, Jack, I love, I love the book first and foremost because I can never keep track of all the places that you've lived, and so this gives me an easy way to look at in order. I'm counting 18 states. That includes well, that includes countries, right? 18 states and countries. Does that sound right? That you've that you've essentially lived in over the course of your life so far. Yeah, it might be one or two more than that, but yeah. And uh, the other thing that's striking, just kind of going through the autobiography, is is your memory. I, I feel like I either have bad memory um, or yours is really good. Um, and was that always something that you remember? Um you know, being a skill of yours? Because you're, you're saying your earliest memory goes back to when you were two years old, right? Right. Yeah, I, I do remember that. I was jumping off a fence into my father's arms. That's pretty cool. I think I can go back. It's fuzzy for me going back um, to like preschool. I think that's about four years old for me, but I, I, I can't even grasp anything going before that. That's incredible. So two years old, do you think that was just part of the process of sitting down writing this that helped you bring back some of these memories? Or do you feel like you've always had a good handle on on your life story and, and a lot of these details that you brought out in the book? Yeah, I, I can I can tell you this. My memory is going badly now these ways, these days. 
<laughs> um, it, it, I, I do remember kindergarten and I remember first grade and, and I don't remember like third and fourth and fifth grade at all. And I remember seventh grade. It's just different things that went on. We moved different places. And when we moved to a new place, I tend to remember what, what took place when we moved. So born in Detroit, right? But you only, you didn't spend much time there. Um, so you wouldn't oh, remember anything in Detroit, right? Yeah, we only lived there. My dad moved us to Calif to San Francisco when I was only a couple of months old. Yeah. So I don't remember anything about re Detroit, obviously. Uh, and then you moved to California, to Northern California, right? Yeah, yeah, we moved to San Francisco and then the Bay Area. We moved out of the city into into the Bay Area. And then we actually spent one year in in uh, Long Beach, so Southern California. My the reason we moved around a bit when I was young was because my father worked for the the government mm -hmm. and he was a, he was a telephone switchboard installer back in the days when they had telephones and switchboards and he he worked for the military and installed telephone switchboards in different places. And they, they would say, okay, we're going to bring you up to Washington for a year, or we're going to bring you out to Utah for a year. And sometimes my brothers and I and my mom, would all we'd all go and spend that year where my dad was working. Mm. So you spent a lot of time in, in Northern California growing up, right? The, oh, yeah. I was, yeah. I was there until I graduated from high school. Okay. And it and, seemed like a common theme for you growing up was just outdoor life, right? You know, from yeah, California. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All we did was we loved to fish and the ocean was nearby. We could drive over there in about 30 minutes and we fished in the ocean a lot and we, and we hunted quite a bit. And in those days, People carried guns around. I can remember my brother and I walking through the little town we lived in, San Carlos, California, walking to the bay with our shotguns on our shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's when I was about 12 years old, I think. Well, so what were, you, what were you hunting at that point? Ducks and geese. And you talk, another thing, so... It makes me think all this outdoor life, you will get more into your time spent in Montana. And it's, it seemed like certainly contributed a lot to, you know, what led to your career as an athlete and as an Olympian, right? It's, I assume you attribute a lot of it to how much time outdoors and, and the places you lived, right? Yeah, that, that helped a lot. My older brother, I was the second boy of our family. My mom had five five boys. She said she didn't want to have any girls, so she didn't. <laughs> and I don't know why, but um, yeah, we were we all we all loved out of doors. But my my biggest probably reason for becoming athletic was was high school. My physical education program that I had in my high school which was just unbelievable. Yeah, we touched base a little bit on on Sequoia High School in the last episode, the last time we talked. Um, so th and that was definitely a huge influence on you in terms of sports and and competing, right? And and you know, just being fit in general, right? 
mostly just being fit. I, and I don't know what drove me to want to do it so much. I, I wanted to, I grew up as a young kid wanting to play baseball. And when I went to high school, I tried out for the baseball team and I didn't make it because I, I couldn't hit well enough. I could throw real well and run, but I couldn't, I couldn't hit the ball that was being pitched. So I didn't make the baseball team. So I went out for swimming just because my brother, my older brother, Danny was on the swim team. And he said, well, you might as well come out for swimming. So I came out for swimming, but the most benefit I got from high school was physical education, unbelievable physical education. We had that color, color system where you, you wore different colored shorts depending upon how advanced you were in your physical activity. Yeah. Well, did that attribute to, you're saying it was more fitness and less, less competitive nature. You didn't become very competitive um, while participating in that physical education system. Well, competitive in trying to get good scores in the tests. Yeah. That we had the eight tests we had to do and you had to really train to do them because you had things like chin ups and bar dips and, two runs and a, and a swim and all kinds of activities that you had to do on, on those tests. And I remember it wasn't a matter of training with a group of people. It was a matter of just training on your own. Yeah. So um, they didn't teach us how to do those things. They just said, we're going to test you and see how many of these you can do or how fast you can do this or how fast you can climb a 20-foot rope without using your legs and different things like that. And it seemed, you also mentioned um, another big influence in terms of interest in sports, right, was the, was the basketball player. I've heard you tell this story, too. You remember this, this basketball player coming to school, right? To, uh, he essentially was like a performer, an entertainer, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the seventh grade, and it was unbelievable. He uh, he shot 10 straight free throws from the free throw line. Then he kneeled at the free throw line and shot free throws. Then he laid on his back at the free throw line and shot free throws. <laughs> he stood under one basket and slung the ball sidearm to the other end of the court to try to sink the basket down there and he missed two and then he got on his microphone he said i've never missed three and he he hit the third one <laughs> i'll never forget that guy i don't i don't know how he could do what he did he's like an early uh globe trotter i don't know if you've ever yeah. seen the harlem globe trotters um yeah so you i i loved watching those shows you you talked about you mentioned in the book how seeing that um made maybe uh, accomplishing some difficult tasks not so impossible after all it seemed like it it inspired you to, you know to maybe do something if you put your mind to it you said um so that struck me as as a as a defining moment almost um when you watch that guy do you feel like that played that played a big factor too it did play a big factor because i figured that guy can do that better than anybody else in the world must have to just practice something and you can do it. Mm. It made sense and because I took up trombone playing back in those days too. And I I actually wanted to be a great trombone player like like the ones in the big dance bands. Yeah, um, so that that era, Jack, the big the big band era, it sounded like 
I'm glad you brought that up because it seemed like your situation in terms of where you lived, um, the, the physical education program at Sequoia, that stuff was sort of pulling you into sport, but it's to me, it sounded like naturally you gravitated towards music, right? Boy, there's no doubt about it. I, I wanted to be a great trombone player. And quite honestly, I have to say I was pretty good. <laughs> I tried to kept it up and, and it, the only reason I didn't major in music in in college was because I didn't go to college to major in music. So I didn't go to a school that had that kind of a situation. Okay. But I kept playing anyway, but that was strictly on my own. So it seems like everything I ever did when I was young was all on my own. It wasn't competing with people. It was competing with myself. How, yeah. how, much, how much better can I do these t- physical education tests or how much better can I play my trombone? And uh, I enjoyed doing it. Oh, so the that's, you know, touching again on the competitive nature. I was trying to get a sense for how competitive you were, but it sounds like it was more internal. Like you said, that any success you had in athletics wasn't driven about driven by trying to beat someone else. It was just you trying to get the best out of yourself. That's where you were more focused. Definitely. There's no question. I never even worried about what other people did. Mm. And and I, I realize when you get to coaching, you have to worry that worry about that a little bit more. But back then, I was just worried about being as good as I could be in what it was I was doing. And I had I had the greatest brothers to to grow up with, and the greatest mother and father. I, I don't know if I mentioned, but I don't even know why, but ever since we were born, we never called our father father, and we never called our mother mother. Our father, <laughs> we called him Bob. That was his name. <laughs> we called our mother Louise, and that's her name. <laughs> we never used mom or dad or mother or father, never. That was just like the relationship you had with them? It was more... Um... I, I, oh, uh, I don't know who, who it you know, who started that. Obviously, as long as I can remember, that's all I called them. And it was Bob and Louise. And my brothers did the same. They all called mother and father Bob and Louise. <laughs> oh, so they, <laughs> it was the same for them. I was going to say, your mom was young, right? When when she had oh, you? She was incredibly <laughs> My My mother graduated from high school when she was 14. Wow. And she got married that year. And she had my older brother, Danny, when she was 15, and she had me when she was 16. And then she had the other three a little more spread out. But, you know, wow. when I was a little young kid, I, I didn't think anything of it being weird. So I, 14, she graduated high school, then got married. What was the law back then? I, I have I no idea. There was not. And we, we had a, a really weird family because my dad, my father, who he was called Bob, grew up in an orphanage, a child orphanage in in uh, Minnesota. And we don't know, or he doesn't know, none of us ever knew of one ancestor that he had. We don't know of his mother or father or brothers. or We don't even have a clue. Yeah. It's very interesting how, how our ancestry is organized. So before we get into um, getting off into college, I, I want to talk. You've had a couple close calls, right? I mean, the you, you've got so many crazy hitchhiking stories. 
which was not uncommon back then, right? Especially. No, um, my, my older brother, Dan, and I, we used to hitchhike all the time. We, when we went to high school, we lived in San Carlos, California, and our high school, Sequoia High School, was in Redwood City, which was several miles away. And we could take the bus, but if we missed the bus, we would just hitchhike home. Yeah. We just do that on a regular basis. And my brother hitchhiked from California to Minnesota one year, and I hitchhiked from Montana down to California and back. I made it down in 20 hours, and I made it back in seven days. So things were pretty weird. <laughs> it could fluctuate by that much, as much as yeah. a week. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. Um, you talked about one quick story. You said you were going to band practice, and you were in a pretty bad car accident. This is obviously pre-seatbelts, right? So yeah. um, how bad was it? it? Well, it was weird because I, I was it was involved – in my dance band era in high school yeah. and we were driving we were driving to a dance band practice session after school it was in the evening it was dark and the the other kid who was a high school kid was driving his car and we stopped at a stop sign and he when we started up after the stop sign he said i think i'm going to see how fast i can go before i have to take my foot off the floor with the pedal and we, we just sat there. I was sitting in the front seat on the right, and we came around a corner, and there was a, a light, a stoplight ahead, and he had to slam on the brakes. And going around the corner, we slid off the road and into a chain-link fence, and the car rolled over. It felt like three times, and I think it only rolled over once. But we all got out. We all managed to live through it. The, the fence is what saved us because it wasn't hitting another car. It was just running into a a big fence, a chain link fence. And uh, I know I knocked the, I broke the window, the windshield in front of me with my head. Wow. I I messed up my knee on the pressing against the floor that went home and we slammed on the brakes. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Unbelievable. The it's car amazing. Junked. Amazing you came out of there with no yeah, serious of there were four wow. of us in the car, three or four of us in the car, and none of us were seriously hurt. Wow. <clears throat> That's crazy. I keep thinking of you. As we'll talk more about when you get into uh, smoke jumping. Um, yeah. I know you landed a plane that ran out of gas right in the middle of a farmer's field. You spent time in Korea. Um, yep. It's it's incredible, some of these, these stories. Um, so I want to step back real quickly because – you go to school, your first, you go to college, it's the Colorado School of Mines, right? That's where you went. And this is before your family moved to Montana? That's right. And, and I, when it was, when I graduated from high school, you know, in those days, you talked about going to college, maybe. You didn't have to take any exams to go to college. If you just wanted to apply someplace, you could do that. And I had, of all my high school uh, subjects, mathematics was my most favorite. I enjoy um, math. And my mother said, well, maybe you should go and be an engineer, study to be an engineer someplace. So that's where Colorado School of Mines came into it. There was a mining engineer school in Golden, Colorado. And that's that's where I decided to go to college. And I had that terrible trip out there on the train. Yeah. The <laughs> we killed some guy on who was on the railroad track with sitting in his car and uh, – 
But my you, was, saw, you saw that too, right? Because the train stopped and you had to come out and, and you actually witnessed it, right? Yeah, yeah, the train just stopped. It was out by Salt Lake City somewhere and the we we felt the train stop real suddenly, and they for some reason they let us off, and we got off, and there was this guy on the ground that had gotten smashed, and wow. yeah, it, it was really weird. And the car, Jack, the car got stuck on the track. Essentially, it was like one of those, almost like a movie script, right? Like yeah, I don't know what happened. His, I think it was actually a pickup truck, and it it stalled on the track. Wow. Dry- trying to drive across the track and there were two of them in the vehicle. And the story was that one of them said, let's get out of here. Here comes a train. And the other guy said, no, I think I can get it started again and I'll, I'll get it started and drive off. And he just sat in there trying to start it and the train just slammed him. He never even tried to get away. And the other guy had enough time to get out of the truck and climb over a fence and go to the little road next to the train track and watch it happen. It was crazy. Wow. So <laughs> my introduction to going to college. Jeez. Um, so, <clears throat> so you had the car accident, then the train accident. Um, and then it sounded like at Colorado, you didn't really have a great experience there, right? Especially in, in academics that just wasn't, you weren't really focused um, but I but I noted your first ever running event, right, was when you were essentially being hazed by upperclassmen, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, we, those were the days when you still had hazing going on at, during your freshman year or your first, at least your first semester. And uh, that was going on. And the last thing that they did to all the freshmen was they had to run a lap on the track. And around the entire track where all the sophomores, juniors, and seniors were lined up just, you know, two feet apart all the way around. And you ran between those two lines of those guys. And those guys had their belts out and they were slapping you on the rear as you ran by. (laughs) Wow. I I often wonder how fast of of a 400 we ran. (laughs) And the only thing I I remember is that it, was the only time in my life that I came real close to vomiting after a run. <laughs> there was no up or anything. You just had to get in line and run this thing one one after the other. They, they, the, the hazing was unbelievable. One night, they took all the freshmen out of town, three miles out of town, and they gave you your choice. You could keep your shoes on or keep your pants on. <laughs> You had, to, you had to get yourself back to town from three miles out of town, either wearing no pants or wearing no shoes. Wow. Yeah. That so was, that was, were, were you involved in that? What did you choose? Oh, shoes. <laughs> miles barefoot on a highway. No way. <laughs> That's yeah, funny. It was, it was an interesting time. Um, and, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, I didn't, as you mentioned, I didn't do real well in studies there because I wasn't used to studying. I was used to studying with my mom. My mom used to always make me study. She helped me tremendously. And and here I didn't have that. I just had three other roommates. We lived in an apartment, in a basement apartment my freshman year. So you you leave. So we see your early interest in math there. You end up leaving transfer to Montana basically because 
Danny's up there having more fun, right? Or he's doing outdoor stuff. Oh, that's exactly right. My brother Danny was at Montana University to study forestry. And he was doing a great job in that. And, the, and it's a great forestry school. And he all he was doing was writing me to tell me about the fishing and hunting trips he was doing. And all that I was doing was writing him to tell him how terrible I was doing in class. <laughs> so I, I figured I better just transfer up to Montana and get involved in what's going on up there. Oh, that's our, cool. So our whole family moved up there. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, um, well, the whole family moves to Montana because they sent you guys inherited a ton of land right from your great uncle up there yeah we got 160 acres he homesteaded he was a civil war veteran in fact he was the last civil war veteran in the state of Montana to to die and they gave him a full a full military funeral and he 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 left his 160 acres of land to my grandmother and then my grandmother left it to my mom and dad, and we went up there to visit and see what that land looked like, and it was beautiful. It was just unbelievable. It had a 30-acre lake on it, and the rest of it, and about a 20-acre big field there, and then it had, the rest of it was all just timber. And it's, does it still own by the family? Yeah, my I'm, I'm not involved in it, but my younger brothers have, because my younger brothers all live up there. Okay. And well, are the ones that are still around anyway. That's Kent, right? Yeah, Kent's the main one. He, <laughs> there's a the character. <laughs> um, so you're you're at Montana, and this is where it starts to more things start to fall in place, right? Because you get involved in swimming, and yeah. major, eventually majoring in phys ed. You do some competing at altitude, so now it's all starting to make sense in terms of you know, what you eventually went on to do, right? Yeah, yeah. And I really enjoyed the, my physical education major. I had good teachers in that. And uh, so I, I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. It was, but Montana was, was good. The university was great. I, I had lots of fun there and we could do lots of fishing and lots of hunting there. And my, my older brother, Danny, and I, we, we, we had a deal that we would try each some each well, they had three quarters a year instead of two semesters, and our goal was to try to attend every class one week of every quarter, <laughs> and we never did it, never accomplished that because we had to go fishing or hunting or do something on on a day when we missed a class. It was I, I enjoyed school, I really did, but it was you you did other things while you were in school. Right, you said you were you were more focused on, on just passing, right? Because you were busy experiencing other things. You weren't focused on excelling in in school. Oh, you Those days, you didn't think, "Where am I going to go to graduate school, or what is my profession profession going to be?" Mm. And uh, I I enjoyed physical education, and I did student teaching in physical education. So I figured that's what I was going to do: was teach physical education. And I, I wanted to do well enough to graduate. <laughs> that was about, that's what it amounted to, was not worrying about getting an A and everything, but just passing everything. And, and tell us about the shack. I love the shack stories with, with where you lived off campus. <laughs> it's hard to believe, you know, people don't understand in those days, we're talking 1950, 19, late 1940s and 
in the 50s and tuition, I paid $200 a year for tuition or 120 a year. I can't even remember now. A year. I think it was, yeah, it was 120. It was $40 a quarter for three quarters, 120 a year for tuition. And then where to live, we lived in a dorm for a while. And then we lived in a in a shack. It had a name tag on the wall of the shack on the outside of the door. It said the shack. And that's where we lived. In the shack, we paid $10 a month rent. That was $5 each, not $10 each, but five each. And the shack had two rooms in it, a kitchen with a wood-burning stove and a sleeping room and no bathroom. Had to go to outdoor toilet. So (laughs) the shack, but it was good. But if you didn't get up in the middle of the night to put extra fuel on the on the fire in the shack it got really cold <laughs> we, we, used to, we, we finally realized that the only place in the in a real cold night in in missoula montana and living in the shack the only place that something wouldn't freeze was in the refrigerator <laughs> so so if you had something you didn't want to freeze you put it in the refrigerator because that was up in the 30s in there <laughs> That was was quite a, my brother and I, we we just got along so well together and that was great. And uh, just hunting. And he he went on to work in forestry for his life. And I mean, there was nobody better. Nobody. So um, the shack was, you also, I remember you saying you would hang the, the stuff you would. You would hunt. You'd hang in the back, right? But there would oh, also be once in a like, while. We'd, in yeah. the winter, we'd just hang a an animal out in the backyard and cut chunks off of it off when we wanted it. But generally, you took your food down to a, a freezing compartment where they they butchered it for you and packaged it for you. <laughs> you t- you also talked about drilling a hole in the wall, right, in the shack. <laughs> well, that yeah, because we didn't have an. <laughs> A toilet in the shack. So we drilled a hole in the wall in the closet and put a funnel there so we could relieve ourselves <laughs> without going outside. <laughs> yeah. I bought my first car when we lived in the shack. It was a 1936 Hudson. I think I paid $80 for it. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to talk about it. I've never heard of a Hudson. I'm not a big car guy, though. Quit making them. Actually, when we were at Montana University going to school, Hudson's were used by the state highway patrol. Mm. Not, they were more modern ones than the one I had. I had a 36, and we're talking about almost 1950. So it was an old one. So, so Jack, Montana, to me, it looks like Everything came together. There was the phys ed. There was um, swimming. You talked about uh, competing at altitude, and then you went on to do all the this research for altitude performance and um, training at altitude. And then you, the other big thing was um, for swimming. You had some success as a swimmer, but there was a football coach that was uh, <laughs> managing you guys, right? So it kind of forced you to do some of your own coaching at that point. Was that, that's the first instance of you coaching, right? Yeah, that, that is exactly right. We, we had a great swim coach the year that I first went there and he retired from the school. And so instead of hiring a new swim coach, 
they just had one of the assistant football coaches be the swim coach. And I don't even think he knew what a swimming pool was. But, but I, I used to, so I used to write the workouts for the whole team. And that worked out okay. I, I enjoyed swimming. The, the weird thing about being on the, on the swim team then, or on many teams, you can't believe we were in a conference. The con- we were called a Skyline Conference back then. And it had the University of Montana. The next closest school in our conference to us was Idaho State. And Brigham Young, University of Utah, Utah State, Colorado, or Den- University of Denver, Colorado State, they were all in our conference. And so was the University of New Mexico. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of miles to the closest school in our conference. And when we would go to the conference swimming championship, I remember one year it was held in BYU or University University of Utah, but down in the same area. That was about a 550-mile trip to go to the conference swimming, and that was driving cars down there. You didn't fly anywhere. So it was pretty spread out and pretty amazing. Like I shot on the rifle team at the University of Montana. They had a rifle team. And was that before ROTC or after you had gotten into ROTC? Yeah, that was in. I was in ROTC when we did that. And because I, when I was at Colorado Mines, my first school, you had to take back in those days. You had to take ROTC, or I, I felt that we did anyway. I did, and so and Mines, they only had Army. At Montana, they had Army and Air Force ROTC, but I figured, well, I've done one semester of Army. I might as well stay with Army ROTC at Montana, and it, it was good, and it allowed me to graduate from college and and be in in the service well, as a lieutenant. Yeah. And, so you, so does the smoke jumping? Did that come before? You went into the army. That that came while you were still in school. Yeah, right. So smoke, smoke jumping was a was a big forest service job. Mm. A lot of guys like to do smoke jumping, and my brother, who was a forestry major, he smoke jumped. My brother Danny, he did smoke jumping, and then I, I said, "Boy, that sounds good. Maybe I can do that." And he said, "Well, you're supposed to have a year of." St- of summer work in the Forest Service doing other menial jobs before you're allowed to apply for smoke jumping. My my brother Danny talked the Forest Service into letting me in without having that previous year. They said, he's he's an athlete. He'll be okay in smoke jumping. (laughs) (laughs) So so I did smoke jump for a year, my last year at college, and my brother – Danny kept smoke jumping, and then our our younger brother Jerry also became a smoke jumper later on. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about how smoke jumping works, so any any of our listeners understand what it is. It's it's pretty yeah. wild. It, basically, whenever there was a lightning storm, that's most of the most of the forest fires were caused by lightning, and all the forest rangers who were up in their little facilities. When they they would log onto their map where they saw lightning strike the ground, and they assume, they assumed it was striking a tree someplace, and it might cause a fire, so they they just enter that on their on their map, and they could have a, a very very accurate location of where these lightning strikes were, 
And the next day, if they saw any smoke at all, what they'd do is they'd send a couple smoke jumpers over there to put that fire out before it got to be a big fire. I mean, you you got the fires sometimes when the fire wasn't 50 feet wide. It was covering 20 feet on the ground, and that was it. Oh, so it could be as big as 50 feet wide by the time you landed. And, oh, yeah. And what are you putting it out with at that point? They, they just dropped, they dropped uh, a tool bag with a couple of couple of tools that you could do to dig and chop and cut wood with and and shovel and cut, bury the bury the the flames on the ground so basically you were you're you were doing stuff that was on the ground and before you were allowed to leave that location if you thought you had the whole thing completely under control you had to go barehanded and feel every inch of the ground where the fire covered. And if there was if there was any fire still underground, it you'd burn your fingers. Wow! So you 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 had a, you weren't allowed to leave that place until you had that thing under control. And if it was a bigger fire, you might they they often sent two guys to a fire. It's usually not just one. It's not one, but it was usually a two man fire or maybe a five man fire or whatever. Because they used little bitty airplanes to to fly two guys over to take care of a fire, it would be a little single prop plane. What what altitude were you jumping out? Usually about one thousand feet. Was a minute ride down. Wow! And you said you got caught in a tree once. Yeah, you well in practice, in you had a, a bunch of practice jumps, and two of them were over trees, so you you had no choice but to land in the trees to know how it felt like. And it, it's very nice to land in live trees because the sh- you go your body goes through the trees and your chute catches on the top of the tree <laughs> and keeps you from hitting the ground. <laughs> it's hanging there, you're hanging there on your chute and you got a big long rope and a big pocket on your leg that you just lower yourself down to the ground on this rope. And then you get to climb back up the tree and get your chute out to bring it back to town. Wow. But, if it, and the bigger fires, they would send a few jumpers in just to get things started, but they would send a ground crew in. They might send a 10-man or a 20-man ground crew in, but the, it took them maybe several hours to get there. And in the meantime, the jumpers could get things under control, and then the ground crew came in, and they, they had to take over, and then the jumpers could leave. The, the negative part about that was that if you jumped way out in nowhere, you had to walk out. It was, easy. it was easy to jump into someplace out in the middle of nowhere, but it wasn't easy to walk 20 miles out when you didn't even know where you were. <laughs> Unbelievable. You So we could probably do a whole podcast season on your brother, Jerry, your younger oh. brother, who eventually gets into smoke jumping too. Was the, the CIA... Um, did they did they recruit smoke jumpers in particular, or just by chance um, they oh, got they, Jerry they, got connected somehow? They recruited them. Yeah, and uh, my brother Jerry, who was, I guess he was probably eight years younger than me, mm-hmm. and so he he was jumping after I was gone from Montana. He wasn't jumping the same years I was jumping. But he got recruited by the CIA to work for them over in Laos and work with the Hmong, the Hmong Indians who were guerrilla guerrilla war fighters for the U.S. Army in the mm-hmm. Vietnam conflict. And and Jerry was probably the 
top CIA agent in that area. He he lived there 17 years working with the Hmong. And I'll tell you what, the things that he accomplished are way, way beyond anything I've ever done. Yeah. I, I've seen pictures or video of Jerry's funeral. It seemed like there were a couple thousand people there, right? Oh, unbelievable. He, I mean, the, the guy was just unbelievable. The books, the, several books have been written about him. And I'm, I'm still not convinced that we know all the truth about everything. Yeah, like I said, we could, we could probably do a, a few episodes on, on his book. The, the book is a hogs, hogs exit, right, Jack? Yeah, hog. Yeah, his CIA code name was Hog. H O G. Yeah. Uh, the lady that wrote that book called the book Hog's Exit. Yeah. Or talked about his life and how it ended and. Yeah. How, how interesting it was and. And he, he used to he used to write me all the time. We we corresponded when he he lived most of his living time was in Bangkok in Thailand, right right across the river from Laos. And he lived with the 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 head guy of all the Hmong Indians, General Bang Pao. He he lived with General Bang Pao for a couple of years personally. And wow. people used to say that Jerry was Bang Pao's son. And wow. yeah, he that's Jerry, just the, the number of things that he accomplished in his life, unbelievable. So let's let me skip forward a little bit, Jack. Um, to you, you get into the army, right? And you get shipped to Korea during the, the yeah. conflict there. Um, you talk so a couple things. Um, I love that that you're staying along the 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 DMZ, right? And you said that it was more comfortable than the shack. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, when I, I went to, to well, when you graduated from college, if you were an ROTC, you had to go into the Army for two-year minimum. So I, I knew that one. As soon as I graduated, I was, I was sent down to Fort Benning, Georgia, to go through the basic training for a, a number of months. And then... And you got your commit. You got you you got your uh, orders to what what you're going to do. And my orders, of course, in those days, almost ninety percent of everybody's orders was to go to Korea. Yeah. Uh, the conflict was actually over when I arrived there, but it was still a very stressful time. And I, I arrived in uh, Seoul on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> wow. Which which didn't mean anything to anybody there, but to us, we we were missing Thanksgiving, and it, we they drove us in a truck up to our to I was I was a rifle platoon leader, and my company was we were the only well our our regiment actually was north of the Yalu River, and the the one of the kind of comfortable things about being north of the river was that. South Korean civilians were not allowed up there uh, north of the river. So we, yeah. we didn't deal with any South Korean civilians except the ones who were in the army. And I had, for instance, in my, my rifle platoon, I had more South Korean soldiers than American soldiers. And I'll tell you what, they were the greatest guys. They would do anything because they were getting free room and board. Mm -hmm. uh, a place to live in in, in in a nice situation and they were the best soldiers uh, and 
every once in a while, they would have a, a little practice up on the DMZ, and we had to leave our shacks where we lived. We lived in canvas canvas shacks. As I mentioned, it was more comfortable than the, than the shack. But <laughs> we would leave those, and we'd have to go up and dig, dig foxholes and sleep overnight in a foxhole right up on the DMZ. And I, it seemed to me that every time we'd go up on the DMZ to just for, uh, for a practice, you could you could see across the DMZ to the other side, and you could see the North Koreans and the Chinese. They would come up to show that they would they were still there also. Yeah, was it a little nerve wracking or no? Did you ever were you I, how I, comfortable? I don't, you? I don't know. You never. I guess all all I. It's interesting. I remember thinking I'm going to Korea, and I, and I don't know what I'm going to be asked to do, but I do remember thinking. I'm going to do exactly what they asked me to do. Yeah, and that, that's what you do in the military. You, and I'm, yeah, I'm go proud ahead. To say that. You you talked about the life in the military. That was a major turning point in terms of your career as a sportsman and a coach. How come? Well, because I, while I was in Korea, I I entered. A, uh, they had an annual triathlon competition. And I never even heard about it before. And the the three events in the triathlon for the military, it was a military tri, U.S. military triathlon. And the three events were pistol shooting, swimming, and running. And I had shot on the rifle team in Montana, so I was very used to shooting. And I'd been on the swim team in Montana, so I, was, I, I said, and I, <laughs> I remember saying, anybody can run, so I'll, I know I can do that. They don't have to, it's not a skill you have to learn anyway. Whereas you have to learn the skill to swim and the skill to shoot. So I entered this triathlon in Korea and qualified to go to the Far East Championship over in Tokyo, Japan. And I entered the entered the one in Tokyo. I got to go there for a month to train. And I entered that and I actually won that. <laughs> and that that allowed me to go to the all army triathlon which was held in california in other words all eight army units were allowed to send three their top three and so i was sent to california and i don't even remember to this day what place i was i think i was like fourth or fifth or something like that and but i was invited by the u.s army to go to fort sam houston in san antonio texas to train for modern pentathlon, and yeah. I'd never, I'd never even heard of modern pentathlon before. And they told me, well, it's running, swimming, shooting—the same thing you had in this triathlon. Plus, you got to learn to ride a horse, and you got to learn to fence. So I said, well, that sounds good. And they said, do you want to go back to Korea and get all your gear? Because we're shipping you right to San Antonio, Texas. Wow. I, I said, no, I'll leave my gear in Korea. <laughs> I don't need to go back and get it. <laughs> I I don't know to this day what I left there. <laughs> That's but, funny. So you said your first your first triathlon, you got last on the run, right? Oh yeah, I was terrible in the run. The, the interesting interesting run was that down in Seoul, and I like to talk about it because we ran on a five hundred meter track. I never even knew there was such a thing as a 500-meter track. But it makes sense if you think about it. 500 meters, if you want to run a 1,500, it's three laps. If you want to run a 5,000, it's, what, 10 laps. Yeah. 
You know, it's a lot better than a 440-yard track. Yeah. But anyway, it, it seemed like it was forever getting around that track. And I had I had never, prior to that run, I had never run a step in my life in any sport because I didn't even make the baseball team, so I didn't have to run. All I did was swim. I love that, you know, Runner's World has referred to you as the world's best running coach. And I made a note, uh, you know, I was kind of laughing to myself. So the first time you ever ran a technically a running competition was when you got hazed. And then the next competition where you ran, you came in last. That was your, that was the beginning of your running career. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, the one I came in last, it was interesting because it was a triathlon thing and I was running in last place, but during the run, I actually caught another guy. One of the others who went out too fast and he was dying so badly and I passed him. And as soon as I passed him, he quit. So I still still came in last. (laughs) Uh, So tell us, tell us about your, your pentathlon training. Cause I still, I've heard you say this, but I, once I read it in the book, I I couldn't believe it. Um, it, Cause it's 5 30 AM. You start, not wake up. You were in the saddle at 5.30, and then you were still running and training at 7.30 p.m. That's right. So go through your schedule there, because and, it, and it, you did this for two and a half years straight, right? I did this for two and a half years. It was in the modern pentathlon in San Antonio, and I figured I better do what I need to do to stay here so they don't ship me back to some other assignment. Mm. I wanted to do the pentathlon. I, I knew the swim and I knew the shoot. I thought I could ride and learn to fence and so on. So the schedule they had us on, and this is something that is, is hard to believe, but we did this for two and a half years in the saddle at 530 every six days, six days a week, not five, six days a week in the saddle at 530, which means you had to be there by five to to put the the tack on the on the horse, get the horse ready to ride, and and then you rode till seven thirty for so two hours of riding, and then practicing different obstacles to jump over and so on, and then you then we had breakfast, and then for about an hour, and then we then we fenced for about two hours, and then we drove to the swimming pool, which took about a half an hour. The swimming pool was was not on campus so we, we had to drive over to this swimming pool or well, 50 meter pool and then we swam for about an hour and then we drove back and had lunch and then we got about a one or two hour break and people would usually take a nap and then we had to go to the pistol range and shoot for an hour and a half <laughs> and then we either had to do a second ride or a second fence just individual fencing or riding and then we had dinner, and then at 7.30 at night, we had to go run six wow. days a week, 7.30 till 9. And we're in the saddle the next morning at 5.30. And I, the first thing I learned from that was this, you'll never be a great having to train that hard. There's no way, because there's no recovery time. And, and I did that for two and a half years. And when I got out of the Army and moved to Sweden for a year, and we can get into that later, uh, I, I had to train just when I was available to train. And I usually shot once a week. I fenced twice a week. 
I swam five days a week. I, I rode once a week and I ran seven days a week and all my events got better because I wasn't, I wasn't spending nothing, all my time training. Yeah. You said, um, under that regimen, it wasn't more than a couple months before your, you just, your fitness plateaued, right? Oh yeah. You, I, I, you can't get any fitter if you, if you don't have any time to recover. Yeah. I mean, my and we didn't have a good running coach. We had an unbelievably great fencing coach. He was a Hungarian who'd been to a fencing academy in in Budapest, and he was really a good fencing coach and could teach us how to fence. But to save money, they didn't hire a running coach, and they just told the fencing coach he could be the coach. It was kind of like what I had at Montana when I got a football coach for a swimming coach, and mm-hmm. he didn't have a clue. Uh, and the first workout, I had to do this now. I had to do this five or six days a week when I ran. First, I'm a first-time runner of my entire life. Go to the track, jog a mile on a cinder track. After after mile warm-up, run eight 400s as hard as you can and go home and do that six days a week. Mm. I mean, you can't even move. You don't you don't have any clue how fast you should be running those 400s in. Yeah. And you tried to you all you did was try to run as fast as you could. And so when it came time to run a race, when the race started, you ran as fast as you could and after about a half mile you were already pooped out from going out too fast. So you had so from there you talk about um I want to I want to pivot to the the Olympics cuz the first one you didn't the plan or the objective wasn't to qualify for the Olympics, right? It was really more about seeing what this is about and, and getting some experience first, right? Yeah, it was when the because I, I went to pentathlon in in '56 and and they were the I, I arrived at the modern pentathlon training center on June 20th of '56, and the Olympic trials were going to be held in October. Because the Olympics were in Melbourne, Australia, way down, which is summer for them, down in November and so on. Yeah. And so I we had to do all that training for about two or three months, two and a half months, I think, before the Olympic trials. And I wasn't even going to get to run the Olympic trials because I hadn't been doing the sport long enough. They thought, this guy doesn't know this. But they let me do it. It's unbelievable. And then we only had about... 30 people in the whole Olympic trials from the United States trying out for the the top four in the Olympic trials. The top four got to go to the Olympics in modern pentathlon. And the, those, the top three competed in the pentathlon. And the fourth was an alternate. They got to go to the Olympics but didn't compete unless one of the others got hurt before the competition started. Then he could replace them. So it was an incredible thing. And... I was all, they weren't going to let me even compete, but then they finally decided, well, let them do it and see what it's like. I had never done one pentathlon competition before the Olympic trials. That was my first. Mm. I had ridden in a couple of horse shows and I had fenced in a couple of fencing tournaments. So I knew the sports, I knew the events, not real well, obviously, especially didn't know the ride and the fence very well, but uh, that's a, that's a high skill to learn the fence. Yeah. So we went, we, I don't know if you want to know the story about those Olympic trials. <laughs> yeah, the, the first one, 
for, so so for 56 in Melbourne, you didn't you had no plan like you didn't expect to make the team. I mean, how did it yeah. how, how did it come together? I no, I didn't. I didn't even do the Olympic trials with the idea of making a team. I did the Olympic trials to see what this sport is like. It was my first modern pentathlon competition of my life were the Olympic trials. And because we didn't have enough horses for all, we, we had about 30 athletes competing in the Olympic trials for the top four to go to the Olympics, the top three run or compete. And so they only had about 15 horses. So instead of having, the ride was supposed to be first. In those days, the five events were run one event a day. The ride was the first day. The fence was the second day. Shoot was the third day. The f- swim was the fourth. And the f- run was the fifth day. So after all these days, then they finally had a, you had a total score. But they didn't have enough horses for everybody to ride. So what they did is they said, we'll do the other four events first instead of having the ride first. We'll do the other four events first. And the top 15 participants... And the score, the top 15 people who have the top 15 scores will get to ride, and the rest of them are out. So that I, that was okay with me. I I went in, I had a pretty good competition, and I I went into the ride in eighth place. And I thought, well, this is, this is good. And it was going to be my first modern pentathlon ride, and I drew a, a great horse called Pharos, who had been on the racetrack and didn't do well enough, so they bought him for pentathlon and taught, taught him to jump. And typically the riding event was 5,000 meters with about 25 obstacles to take your horse over. Mm. Some of them were, were log jumps, some of them were hill things, and some of them were downhill things and all different kinds of obstacles. And you got, if you, if you made the 5,000 meters with all the jumps in 10 minutes, you got a thousand points and each second, faster gave you three points or two and a half points and each second slower took two and a half points away from you from your thousand and each each fault you had at a jump was 60 points off your score and so they kept track of how many faults if you had a refusal at the jump or two or three jumps or if you fell off your horse that was 80 points off your score and so on so i wasn't trying to make the team and after the four events I was eighth, and the guy who won, the guy who won the the, the doggone thing, well, the, the top two, the top two guys after four events, they just <coughs> kind of rode comfortably, and they switched. The guy who was second became first, and the guy who was first became second. So they were on the Olympic team. And the guy who was third going into the ride had a terrible ride. I mean... He fell off his horse three times or something, or he took his horse out too fast, and his horse actually quit. It quit. <laughs> wow. With a 1,000 meters left to go, and he's going two and a half points a second against him. And so he he, he got he actually got off his horse and was hitting it with sticks. Oh. It was, yeah, I've never seen such a thing. So he's out of it. He was third. He, was, he maintained third. He's on the Olympic team, but he's out of it completely. And the guy who was fourth going into the ride, wasn't a very good rider, and he fell off his horse three times at 80 points per fall, so he's out of it. And the guy who was fifth had a good ride, and he he moved up into third. And the guy who was sixth had an unbelievable ride, and he, he just drew a horse that ran away with him. I like to say, 
chances are he's still running somewhere down in Texas. I don't know, but he, he, so he's out of it. And the guy who was seventh became third and I was eighth and I became fourth. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is really great because I'm on the Olympic team and I don't even have to compete. I get to go watch the Olympics and I'm just an alternate. So, so I you, thought it was ideal to, so you, to make the Olympic team and be fourth. You go to the 56 Olympics as an alternate initially. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was chosen as the alternate. But okay. the, very ne- the very next week in practice, the guy who won the, the modern pentathlon Olympic trials, the guy who came in first, had a, had a bad ride and broke his leg. So I'm third on the Olympic team now. So I have to compete. I'm not the alternate anymore. Wow. And they did let him go. I don't know why. They let him go to the Olympics as the alternate, but he, he still leg was broken. They didn't go to the next guy in line. But they, they, I, I mean, I had to feel pretty sorry for him. He won the Olympic trials and then broke his leg and couldn't go to the Olympics. Oof. So you- it was it was crazy, and I mean, I I did it because of the great horse I I drew, and for some reason, riding became my best modern pentathlon event, and it always was my best event in seventeen international competitions. I never had one fault in the riding event, ever. Wow. That just doesn't happen. And I loved the ride, and I for some reason, I just loved horses. We we got a horse. One We bought a horse from the glue factory. We used to try to save them and teach them to ride and teach them to, to jump. And I bought, we got this new one called Sugarfoot. <laughs> I, was, I was the first person to try to ride Sugarfoot. And Sugarfoot was tied up to the fence. I put all the tack on him, and I was I walked around in front of him to adjust his bridle, and he didn't like that. And he whacked me right in the head with his front foot. Oof. Just struck me right in the head. Wow. Like a jab. And I got on him, and we won the competition. <laughs> for, some reason, for some reason, I just get along with horses, I guess. I don't know. I love them. So in, when you get to... 56 Olympics, you had an interesting encounter with the great Emil Zetapak, right? So he, <laughs> I think in, in 52, so the previous Olympics is when he won gold yeah. in the 5K, 10K, and marathon, right? Yeah, he was an unbelievable runner. I mean, anybody in running just talked about Emil Zetapak. And I, down in Melbourne, I went over to this track on the, on the Olympic campus. Yeah. And there were people jogging around on the track, and there was this one guy jogging around lane eight or something. And I went over and jogged with him a while. We were jogging about seven or eight minute mile, real slow. And I asked him what his name was. He said, oh, my name is Emil Zadopek. <laughs> so, so I'm jogging around the track at seven or eight minute miles with the Olympic double, triple champion. And, uh, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And those are the days when I used to think that Boy, if you're going to a big competition, you better be training extra hard in those last few days. And I learned one thing real quick from Emil, and that was you don't train hard the last few days. You recover. <laughs> Did you guys talk at all? I I just read earlier that he he spoke six different languages. Yeah, he yeah we 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 could talk, and we didn't talk much about run training because I wasn't that interested <laughs> at the time. 
But I, I realized later on what I'd learned from him about backing off on your training when it's coming time to really race. Sure. And, That's great. I mean, he was a very, very pleasant guy. Yeah. It seemed like yeah, any some... other. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about um, Gray Boy now because this is really where the title of the autobiography he comes from right luck of the draw yeah well it, it is and and uh, i'll just mention one other thing about the 56 olympics and that yeah. is that you, you draw for your horse and all in all competitions in modern pentathlon you don't ride a horse you know you draw for your horse yeah and i didn't know the horse i drew in in melbourne and i came in second i was only two seconds behind winning the ride in my first international competition and i had that kind of luck all the time I ever did pentathlon. And the the biggest luck of the draw was Gray Boy. And it's almost not right to say it was like a lucky, good luck. It was maybe bad luck. <laughs> so it was the 60, the 60 Olympic trials when we were trying out to make the team for, for Rome. And I, I wanted to make this team because I'd been training for four years now. Mm-hmm. And we had the same the same situation in the in the ride that we'd had previously we didn't have enough for we only had this time we only had nine horses and we had about 20 people to to do it so they said well, okay we'll do what we did in 56 we'll have the ride last and since we only have nine horses the the athletes the top nine athletes in score after four events will get to ride and the the tr- the problem with that one this time was the guy in tenth going into the ride was only one point behind the guy in ninth. Okay. So saying that he can't ride, but the other guy can, and they argued and argued, and they finally said, "Okay, we'll add another horse to the draw to make it ten, so this guy in tenth can also ride." And the horse they added to the draw was Gray Boy, and he was he was a horse that we we all knew him. We we'd ridden him on and off, and he was a very a very tough in the mouth horse. You had to wear a special gag bit to keep him under control with his with his with the reins. And naturally, when it came to the ride, I drew Gray Boy. <laughs> so Gray Boy was notorious. So if everyone knew if you drew him, you were in trouble. You're in trouble if you draw Gray Boy because he wasn't even supposed to be in the ride because. He had never been over all the ride, the, the obstacles in the course. And that's one of the rules of the sport of pentathlon, that before the ride takes place, all the horses that are in the draw must have been over all the obstacles to at least show they could do it. How did you approach training for the ride, though? You just kept rotating horses just to keep practicing, not with the same horse? Oh, yeah. you Every day you rode a different horse. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Obviously, I did that for two and a half years. So you rode the same one lots of times and you got to have favorites and unfavorites. But some of them were faster than others. Some of them jumped better than others. Uh, but you learned them all, all, all our own horses. You learned them pretty darn well. You, if you drew this one, you knew what to do. And the problem with Gray Boy, the only thing that he needed was this gag bit and so I not only did I draw Gray Boy for the ride in the Olympic trials, but I drew the number one ride. So I had to ride before everybody else rode. Wow. You ride all the riders go one at a time 
every five minutes. So after the first rider goes, five minutes later, the second rider goes, and another five minutes later, the third rider, and so on. So I was first, which meant I was going to finish the ride before the third guy even started. And they could all see what kind of a ride I had and how terrible it was and what they had to do to beat me. And I I drew great, but I'm warming him up. And I, we did fine. We had a good warm up. Then about three or four minutes before my start time, I looked down and he didn't even have a bit in his mouth at all. He, the, the special gag bit that he had to wear wasn't functioning. And it, we, we raced around and they couldn't find another gag bit. There wasn't another one. I had to use a regular one and the kind that he liked to just grab a hold of and run off with. And that's what I had to ride the ride in. And I'm up standing in line, ready to start. And they count down 10 and then five, four, three, two, one, go. And about 15 seconds before my go, one of the stable hands came over to tell me the reason Gray Boy wasn't supposed to be in the draw because <laughs> there are two obstacles on this course we could never get him to go over and practice. Oh. And one of the rules was that all the horses had to have been over all the jumps. And the two jumps that he'd never been over were, were similar. They were both at the top of a slide that you had to go down. Pretty, pretty, pretty long slide. One of them was only about 20 or 30 feet down, but one was about 50 feet down. And the jump was at the top of the slide. And then you had to check the horse. In the first case, you checked him and didn't, you weren't supposed to go down the slide. If you went down it, you're going to have to lose all kinds of time getting back up again. This is a dirt slide. And the, the only positive thing about learning what gray boy had to deal with was that the stable hand told me which two jumps he didn't like he had never been over so i knew which which ones they were and i came to the first one it's a 5,000 meter course and i came to the first one about 1500 meters and i figured i'm going to take him into this i'm not going to show him this slide until i'm going to take him in a short approach just kind of make him face the jump before he had time to stop yeah and so I, I did that, and it worked okay. The trouble is he still tried to stop, but we were going too fast for him to stop. So he just tore the jump down, completely <laughs> tore the jump down. <laughs> I mean, those jumps, in, they were made with little logs about four inches in diameter, and they were nailed down. They weren't the kind that you knock off with your hoof. Wow. But he just, he just tore it down, just tore the jump down with his chest. Because he didn't get to jump it. Had you ever seen that before? No, I'd never seen it before. And I, the, the, there was good news and bad news. There's a, on every jump, there's a, a red flag on the right side of the jump and a white flag on the left side of the jump. And the rule is you got to go between the flags, which is pretty logical because that's where the, the two ends of the jump are. And we went between the flags, but we didn't jump the jump. We tore the jump down, but it didn't, it wasn't a fault. It didn't cause, cost me 60 point fault because of a failure, because I didn't fail it. I went between the flags. So, so tearing the jumps down was not even considered in the rules. No, no. <laughs> All you had to do was go between the flags and go over the jump. <laughs> Or go go where between where you went between the flags. So we went between them and tore the jump down. The the good news was that tearing the jump down kept him from going down the slide. Yeah, was right beyond the jump. And the bad news was that I I kind of left the saddle because he stopped rather quickly, 
and I'm sitting up on his neck with his ears between my legs someplace. <laughs> well, anyway, I got back in the saddle and off we went again. And the next to last jump was the other jump that was at the top of a slide. And this time you were supposed to go down the slide and not like the first time you weren't even supposed to go down the slide. You were supposed to stop him after he jumped. Yeah. And the, the second one, you were supposed to go down the slide because you had to go down the slide and over to another jump to the finish line that was down at the bottom of this slide. And you, But when you went down this slide, you weren't supposed to go into the creek down at the bottom that was about five feet deep. So you had to go real gradually down this slide. Well, approaching this jump, he could see it coming. Like the other one, he couldn't see it until I faced him into it. And so he was slowing down, slowing down, slowing down, and he stopped right at the jump. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a refusal, 60 points off your score if your horse doesn't jump. But... If he stops and jumps, it's okay. He can stop and jump, but if he stops and takes one step backward with any of his four feet, then that's a refusal, and you had to go back and try it again. <laughs> You're allowed to try it three times, and if you didn't do it in three tries, you know, lost 180 points, but you could go on. Well, when he stopped, before he took a step back, I whacked him with a crop right on his hindquarters, and he reared up in the air. On his two hind feet, just like Silver does with the Lone Ranger. <laughs> and he's up in the air. And for whatever reason, he took a step forward with one of his rear feet. That took him closer to the jump. So when he came down from rearing up on his hind quarters, he came down right on top of this jump. And this jump was made out of logs about two, two feet in diameter. Wow. So he's going to break them or tear them apart. And he landed right on the top of those logs on his stomach. And so he, here he's just rocking back and forth on his stomach on the top of this jump. <laughs> for whatever reason, he decided to climb over it. So he just brought one hind foot over and brought the other hind foot over. And we went on down and finished the race. And it didn't have any penalties on that. It was oh. just unbelievable what he did. Wow. And I, I was... I went into the ride in third place and only the top three get to go compete in the Olympics. And the fourth is an alternate. And the guy in first dropped the second, the guy in sixth before the ride went all the way to second. So with one guy left to ride, I'm, I'm, in, I'm still in third, but the guy who had the last rider was in second going into the ride and he drew the best horse in the draw a breeze, a horse that I'd won internationally with a couple of years ago. And I figured I'm not gonna I'm gonna end up being the alternate on this thing because I'm third right now and this guy's in second and he hadn't even ridden yet and he's got the best horse to go. <laughs> and for some reason he 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 was so certain that he was gonna have this beautiful ride that he didn't wear his spurs. And I don't know why in the world he didn't wear spurs. That's how you leg a leg a horse to tell him it's time to jump or to do something. Okay. And when they said three, two, one, go. For him to start, instead of legging his horse to start, he whacked his horse with his crop. And that horse didn't like being whacked with a crop, I guess, when he was standing still. Because mm -hmm. he just stood there for a minute and four seconds. An entire minute and four seconds, he stood there and wouldn't move. Wow. He was whacking that horse. I've never seen, I've never seen a horse do that before. Wow. It's the greatest horse in the draw. And he's just standing there losing two and a half points a second for a yeah. minute and four yeah. seconds. Are you watching this live right now or no? Am I watching it? 
so, so do you guys watch each ride pretty closely? Oh, like, yeah, we're watching it. Yeah. Just standing there watching. What's he doing? Wow. And he he, fi- he finally. Oh, and another guy who who had who was had beaten me in the ride had had one one uh, refusal on one jump and lost sixty points, so he didn't beat me. I mean, everything that could possibly happen to put me on that Olympic team happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no way I, I, that I I made it with so the way that things were going. You finished that crazy ride just thinking, I'm out of it, that, that yeah. I have no chance? Well, yeah, because the last guy to ride has the best horse in the draw, and yeah. he's the last guy to ride, and I'm already third. That means he's going to drop me to fourth, and I'm going to go to the Olympics as an alternate. And I didn't want to go as an alternate this time. First time I wanted to go as an alternate because I thought this would be fun to watch. But going first is good in a way, right? Because you, you're more focused on just your ride, right? Instead of yeah, thinking about, it. about anybody else going first is is always good. And, and in Rome, in Rome Olympics, I had. Uh, you know, I, I never had a fault in the ride, but for sometimes you just had better horses than other times. Yeah. And unfortunately, I didn't get a, a fast horse. I had a beautiful jumping horse that could jump anything, but it wasn't very fast. And I, I guess in the Rome Olympics, I had my slowest ride I'd ever had. <clears throat> but I had my highest Olympic place overall. I, I, I came, uh, there were 60 competitors in the Rome Olympics, 60 in the modern pentathlon. Wow. And I, of those 60, I was third in the swim and I was eighth in the shoot and I was 11th or, or ninth in this, in the fence. And uh, I think I was eight. No, I think I was eight in the ride and 11th in the fence. So out of 60, I had four events in the top 11. And my run was 24th, <laughs> my usual slow run. <laughs> right. That's what made me to decide to become a running coach. <laughs> figure out how to train to become a better runner because I'm a lousy runner. <laughs> well, well, I think that's a good, that's a good place for us.